great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and I know you downloaded this episode. I don't know much more than that, but I do have access to some data on how often and from where something gets downloaded. I'm sure that you're a podcatching app provider who knows even more than I do. Likewise, you might know a fair bit about me, even though we may have never met. This world of information technology-assisted watching is interesting, and it's terrifying. Luckily, though, there are scholars studying the world surveilled to help us better understand what we face each day. If you know nothing about surveillance, then you're in luck, because our guest today is Dr. David Lyon, who's one of the instigators of this field of research and has been writing on the topic for over three decades. He's also published a great many books and papers, and I'll provide links in the show notes for some of those, including a recent report titled Beyond Big Data Surveillance. Having the opportunity to have a conversation with someone with so much experience, I really wanted to get a sense of the history of the field and how it might have developed over time. As you might expect, this resulted in some big questions that required some big answers. So we'll be extending the conversation across two episodes. We will still be joined later in this episode, though, by Vanessa Henri, who will help answer my silly questions about cyber lawyering. So let's jump into the conversation with Dr. David Lyon, and I asked him if he would help me understand when and how it was he got started delving into digital surveillance. We were looking at everything from rural communities through to very urban communities. And in the urban communities, there was an awful lot of talk about the ways in which new computing technologies were going to be developing. I mean, it was frequently a sort of promissory note about the future. And it was consequent upon something that did actually happen, which was 1978, the invention or the putting together of the silicon chip. So the silicon chip was the capacity to embed an electronic circuit within nano-thin strips of silicon. And this meant that you could miniaturize and create very lightweight computing machines. Of course, this was a military context out of which it came. Uh, We're talking about uh, Cold War. We're talking about the threat to the US of Russian military power after the launch of the first Sputnik. And, you know, that was seen as a threat. Future warfare was going to be in space. And the Americans were anxious to ensure that they could get lightweight, miniaturized electronic circuits that could be put into orbit and could be uh, used in what was assumed to be space warfare. So that was the origin of the thing, a military origin. But there was an awful lot of talk about it, having a wide range of civilian consequences and possibilities for the insertion of electronic circuits in uh, all kinds of areas. Pretty soon, because people started talking about microelectronics, that was the term, and microelectronics was going to change the world, according to the pundits. It was that that got me into it, because in that urban context of urban community studies, it was supposedly going to make a, a huge difference. And so being someone who had some background in sociology, I started thinking about this and thinking, well, what has the role of new technology been in actually prompting certain kinds of social change? Is it really what it's cracked up to be as, uh, as an agent of change? 
or is it something rather more complex than that? And really that led to my critical thinking about microelectronics and then information technology, because information technology was a term to describe the ways in which computing machinery could be brought together with communications technology. And it was that marriage whereby computers, for example, would supply the switches for the communications, and the communications would enable the further spread of the computing technologies. So therefore, people started thinking not just about the so-called microelectronics revolution, but also about information technology and information as uh, as a new thing. It's not that it didn't exist before, but it had a new sense that there were all kinds of things that were embryonically here that could give birth to something different. And so that was the, that was the, popular mood that you read in the in the popular press and it became a very attractive thought and, and at a time when cold war was still important too and so i i wrote this book about the uh, information society subtitle issues and illusions just to try to say you know there are some really important issues concerning these matters but the supposed outcomes of this so-called information or microelectronics revolution uh, were very, you know, seen through rose-colored spectacles. And I wanted to argue that there are some illusory dimensions of these beliefs in the new society. So I started writing this book, and um, and then uh, through a good circumstance, I, uh, I met someone who said, well, why don't you send it to this particular publisher? And uh, that was the beginning of a, a long-term publishing uh, relationship, which was great. And um, and as I was writing, I got to what in my mind was chapter five, and it seemed like, yeah, just another chapter in the, in the book. But it was the one about what I came to call surveillance, or I came to understand as surveillance. That chapter in that book became enlarged in my consciousness. <laughs> the book went out as it was, and it, it did okay. But in my mind, the really important thing was to explore this further. And why was that the case? Well, because I, it seemed to me that the possibilities for change in the area of ordinary everyday human life were most expanded within that context of what I was to think of as surveillance. Before the internet really became popular, you wrote the electronic eye, mid-90s, early 90s. This was more of a projection of a reality that could happen, or it was just a continuation of Chapter 5? In The Electronic Eye, I was really trying to develop a kind of historical sociology. The subtitle of the book is The Rise of the Surveillance Society, and uh, that was the title that I sent to the publisher. They said, you know, as publishers do, we need a sexier title than The Rise of the Surveillance Society. Why not call it The Electronic Eye? And I thought about it for a while, and I, I thought actually that that had some interesting nuances, and they made it even better by uh, putting the uh, Magritte painting on the uh, front cover, which really did capture some important things. I, I intended it to be an historical introduction, really, rather than, a, as it were, a futuristic one. 
I was looking at the background development of the technological potential that made possible new forms of surveillance. But I think what was unique about that book, and which hadn't been done by others, was to show how different areas of life were involved here. It was not merely a matter of the world of work and employment, for example. It wasn't merely a matter of the world of policing and security. It wasn't merely a matter of marketing and consumption. It was all these things at once, and there was a possibility for there to be new connections between what were at that time still considered as separate silos. So that's what I was trying to do to suggest that actually surveillance society was a good word because the different facets of social life were each going to be seen to have a part to play within this developing society. So it was to give it a social historical setting and to think back. I mean, I didn't say an awful lot in that book about the longer term history, which has become tremendously interesting to me in subsequent years, as uh, I have looked at different technological devices and thought about the earlier iterations of those, like biometrics, for example, and then going back to fingerprinting, or, or even just the basic notion of surveillance as spying or snooping. This goes back a long way. I mean, the way we're thinking about surveillance today has to be thought of in modern terms, but there's also the early modern, and by modern, I mean dominated by industrialism, capitalism, and so on. But there are also very early modern examples and ones that date back actually in their provenance to medieval times, and certainly a couple of centuries later than that to times that uh, we think of as Elizabethan, for example. There are interesting examples of, as it were, pre-surveillance, but take Shakespeare, for instance. Uh, Henry V, for example, the king hath note of all that they intend by interceptions that they dream not of. Well, if that's not surveillance, then I don't know what is. And then if you come to a play like Hamlet, it's totally packed with surveillance themes. In, in a sense, surveillance is, is what the play is all about. So in earlier times, you do have these clear resonances with something that perhaps was not considered as something that was going to develop further, but in fact did in very particular ways, such that the kinds of surveillance between countries seeking intelligence on what was going on uh, which must surely be a very ancient historical practice, actually developed in the 19th and then early 20th century in important ways. And I could start to think about the technological bases of those on which work has now been done in, in fascinating ways. So that you have, for example, the development in the 19th century, late 19th century, of some very important surveillance technologies or technologies that were then used for surveillance, I should say, such as the uh, telegraph, the telephone, the phonograph, the camera, all these things, though invented for some other purpose, were seen to have surveillance possibilities, surveillance potential, and those were engaged both within workplaces, in policing, 
in uh, international intelligence gathering and so on. The, the history of these things is, I find, totally fascinating. The critical thing is that there, there are certain surveillance desires, as it were. It doesn't really start with the technology. It starts with human social activities and the desires for things like control, knowledge, and so on and so forth, that when merged together, when advantage is taken of some new technological device, can become very powerful in the surveillance realm. And of course, there, the, the movement is two ways, too, that the uh, surveillance itself prompts certain kinds of activities and actions on the part of those agents who are involved in the workplace or as uh, suspects within policing surveillance or whatever. There is then an, an interplay, a, a dialectic between the external and frequently increasingly abstract forms of surveillance and the responses of the uh, objects of surveillance who are of course, subjects at the same time, and who become aware of what's going on and respond in particular ways. So that's what I was trying to do in the early books that I wrote regarding surveillance. And as I discovered new dimensions that hadn't really occurred to me earlier, or that I just hadn't been made aware of, like, for example, if you move from Electronic Eye, which came out in 1994, through to the Surveillance Society, which came out in, I think, 2001, that was, in a sense, a, a response to what I'd written earlier, which I felt neglected certain matters, like the global spread of surveillance, on the one hand, uh, on the macro scale, and simultaneously the interest of surveillance in the body and what is going on in human bodies, right through to camera surveillance and uh, eventually uh, facial recognition, or with biometrics, and uh, the search for new ways of actually discerning what is happening in the human body as a part of the surveillance process. So, as I as I went along, I I, I realized that well that any attempt at comprehensivity was doomed to failure, and that I needed to be thinking in broader terms, and that's why I continued the work. Given that the need for information and the possibilities and power of information have kind of been a constant yeah. throughout history, what do you think's changed? Is it that the engines of progress have moved from agriculture through industry and into specifically these information technologies? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really interesting question. I think that the one thing that I have tried to stress is that what we're looking at as we try to understand surveillance now in the 21st century is not something that can be reduced to any one factor, particularly the, the technological. The technological never exists on its own anyway. That which is developed technologically always relates to human desires, human practices, social schemes for finding new ways of governing a society, new ways of trying to ensure, I don't know, that, that law and order are maintained. There is no way that we can see these things in a kind of technological determinist fashion. At the same time, it does really help sometimes if we can say, well, 
look at the technology, see what it was trying to do, and consider why that is the the signal moment that uh, is going to help us understand what's going on. So some of the shifts to mechanical forms of surveillance are pretty interesting. For example, policing in its earliest days, that early Robert Peel policing that um, was so important in, in the UK, had to do with police being made visible and the visible presence of police being important, just as streets were constructed in ways that would make anyone on the street more visible as well. So the use of lighting most dramatically in uh, Paris in the end of the 18th century. You have have devices being added to the human interaction situation, as it were. And and the visibility of police is, is interesting because there's always this I'm not quite sure what it is, a a kind of tension between the visible and the invisible. I mean, that quote that I gave you from Henry VIII, the king hath note of all they intend by interceptions that they dream not of, or Hamlet's speech in to be or not to be, seeing unseen. That question of whether we are seen to be seeing, whether the seeing that is happening to us is something we're aware of or not. These are always questions that come out of a a whole social and cultural milieu, not just this technology and that supposed effect. So I, I, I want to see these things in the broader social, structural, and now infrastructural context, rather than seeing them as uh, existing on their own. But on the other hand, as I say, sometimes the, the specific devices are peculiarly interesting. And out of the interesting device, you can then explore further these social and historical and cultural developments that gave them birth. So if we come through to the 1990s when surveillance cameras started being used in public places, and they had a uh, huge symbolic impact and and culturally became the symbol of surveillance in a very modern sense. If you look at so many books that are written about surveillance, you see a camera comes onto the cover, (laughs) even if the book isn't really about camera surveillance. It's sort of the symbol that that people know. And so that symbol can also be played with. You You can also interpret it in ways that show its social, cultural, historical background, the way that interplay goes on. Those early cameras, of course, depended upon a bunch of operators in a control room actually watching the screens. So many things are going on when screens are being watched by uh, watchers. Very interesting um, PhD thesis that became a book about those watching and the uh, helplessness felt by camera control room operators watching scenes unfolding, uh, you know, after pubs closing and the fight breaks out, totally unable to help with the situation that was emerging in front of them. They could see the thing, but they could do nothing about it. And there's a lot of mental distress, if not mental illness, resulting from those awful situations in which they were placed. But nobody thought about those because they were thinking about the impact of cameras that were there to make us feel safer. And I sometimes think that today, 
we're so inured to having the cultural symbol of the camera, the visual as being the critical moment for the surveillance that we should care about, in the sense perhaps of suspecting it or being worried about it or whatever, rather than the device that so clearly has such huge power today as the mediator of contemporary surveillance, which is the smartphone. The smartphone really should be the thing that is on the cover of books about surveillance. But we still live in a kind of cultural past where the camera and visual surveillance is seen to be the critical thing that we want to have there for our security, that we want to have removed for the reassurance that we're not being watched every time we go past such and such a corner or whatever. It really doesn't figure nearly so much as the smartphone does today. And yet we don't understand what's going on within a smartphone. We don't understand how the data are being collected. Still less do we understand how those data are being analyzed let alone how they are used in order to shape our lives in ways that are far more profound than any camera ever did. So you see what I'm saying, that on the one hand, the technological devices by which surveillance is enhanced may become useful markers as symbols of surveillance, but they don't always give us that bigger, deeper, social, cultural, symbolic understanding. that we, we have to have these things together. And that's why in the work that I've been doing, I try to ensure that what I'm saying is, is not based on some belief that technology can perform certain functions, as it were, on its own. There are always technologies in a social and political and economic and cultural context. And that context makes them, well, operate differently in different milieu, in, in different countries, in different parts of the country, uh, within different intentions, whether we're talking about consumer surveillance or border surveillance through to policing, through to any, any kind of surveillance that you can imagine. Do you see much of a difference between a targeted consumer and, say, a, like a, an ankle-tagged offender? Mm, a targeted consumer or an ankle-tagged offender. So many different expectations are going to be built into that distinction for a start. Uh, the most obvious one is that the offender with the anklet is aware of the device on their person and may not be aware of the full extent of possibilities of contemporary anklets or bracelets, but nonetheless is aware that the monitoring is going on, that they probably have a geofence around them and that crossing certain boundaries is going to result in uh, certain responses by the system and, and so on. The difference between that and the consumer, whether at home making purchases online or in a store where they are much less likely to be aware of the use of multiple devices in the store, which includes, especially in the United States today, which includes voice recognition as well as cameras and facial recognition. The banks of information of different kinds within a store are both hugely complex 
and simultaneously largely unperceived by the consumer in question. So I'd say that's a huge difference. It's uh, seeing unseen, the offender with the anklet is unseen in a literal way, but knows that they are under close monitoring. The person in the smart store or shopping from home is, apart from if they're shopping at home, they're going to see ads that come up for similar items that they have just looked at. So there may well be some awareness, but not a sense of any more than that, which is the kinds of ways that data on them is constantly being updated by every move that they make. There's a difference in the knowledgeability of the person who is under surveillance that has to be borne in mind. It's an interesting way of thinking about that issue. Because if I'm aware of surveillance, then it also gives me the ability to make choices to preserve my privacy. I can modify my behavior in such a way to present myself in a way that, that I would like to be presented. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure which one is preferable. In one circumstance, I lose privacy, but I gain freedom. And in the other, I lose freedom but I am able to modify my behavior to maintain control over what is observed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. But the, the difficulty today is that if we have that concept of privacy, for example, that's going to uh, help us insofar as the thing that we want to keep private is understood properly by us and it's also a question of whether privacy is the only issue. I mean, there's a sense in which some who are under surveillance know that it has larger implications than merely whether someone will see something or become aware of something or perceive something about them. It becomes a question of the, the outcome of the surveillance, how they are treated. And uh, increasingly, there are particular groups in in the uh, population, in any given population, are going to be more acutely aware of the ways in which surveillance affects them. And it's not merely the inadvertent disclosure of certain things that they would prefer not to have disclosed. So, for example, if you are a woman who is working from home during the pandemic and is thus visible, as it were, is made visible, that woman is going to be made more visible than the equivalent man in that household for the multiple ways in which uh, she is exposed, as it were, through the workplace, through the consumption, and so on and so forth. And so during the pandemic, we find that the burden of surveillance on women is greater than those in other groups. Similarly, we've all been made increasingly aware of the ways that certain minorities are seen, that is to say minorities in a predominantly white context or a context in which whiteness is privileged. Uh, They are the ones whose surveillance scrutiny is going to affect more profoundly than those within the predominantly white population. So It's not a question just of what is private and public, though that is important, and getting the privacy condition right is going to help 
in, as it were, trying to maintain justice within the situation. But it is, it is that, it's a question of justice rather than my personal privacy. So I think that's an important distinction that we have to make and increasingly have to make because surveillance is not only the being seen unseen, which of course is, echoes the Benthamite panopticon idea too, where the person who is visible doesn't discover that the inspector, as Bentham called the person in the uh, observation area, is not aware whether or not they're there. They're, they're seeing unseen. It's not just a question of privacy. Even in the panopticon, the panopticon prison was intended to be divided into different segments across the uh, the semicircle, the, the splayed out fan of the different areas within the prison, depending on the kinds of offences that had been committed. And in the same section on uh, panopticism in uh, Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish, you have a reference to the plague uh, and not just to the prison. And in the plague situation, it's very much surveillance by division into different categories uh, so that you could determine whether this person had been affected by the disease and, and this person wasn't. And so you had to divide in order to mitigate the effects of the disease. The surveillance had to do with who was where and how to isolate the one from the other. And therefore, Again, it's a matter of categorization, not merely being visible. You're being made visible as a member of a particular group. So I, I hope you see what I'm saying, that the privacy question is one important question. And if we think about the social dimensions of privacy, as well as the, the personal, as it were, that helps us along the road. But we really need to be thinking about also the ways in which people are sorted into categories, this kind of social sorting that surveillance enables uh, and, and sometimes is defined by today. We'll pause the conversation there and pick it up again next episode to talk about digital surveillance post 9-11 and the role we all play. First, though, if you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from how magnets work to the social implications of global e-commerce. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered a cyber lawyer. Vanessa Henri is a co-founder at Henri & Wolf, an adjunct professor, an advisor on numerous boards, and a very sought-after speaker. But more importantly, she's patient, and she's willing to answer my naive questions. So let's take advantage of that and ask her this. Why do we need cybersecurity lawyers? Right, and I'm going to stick as to why we need cybersecurity lawyers and not lawyers at large, because that's a different debate. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say technologies do pause problems that are interdisciplinary to businesses. To begin with, there's the technological problem, there's a financial problem, the reputational damages that may come if there's an issue uh, with how the technology are rolled out. And then obviously there's a pure legal problem that may come from breaching a law. And between all of this is your procurement, is your marketing, are your employees, all of which can also bring their own share of risk, but all of which also bring part of the response to the cybersecurity problem. So lawyers are not going to answer the cybersecurity problem on their own, but I do think that they bring a perspective, a perspective on what is acceptable, what is not 
what is industry standard over time and what should be industry standard. Lawyers are also very good at advocacy, and that's very often something that is underestimated. Within a business, the advocacy of getting the budget, the advocacy of getting things done, the advocacy of moving along a project or not moving along if it's a bad project, requires being outspoken, requires having the willingness to go through the politics of the enterprise to get this done. And very often I see with my clients that when the legal department works end in end with the IT department, they tend to complete each other and are able to actually get the budget that they need and are able to do the right amount of convincing the right people. By working well with lawyers, you can actually make good allies that are able to work at the govern portion of the business to make things work. Sometimes we may lack the technical expertise to explain this, but the thing is the people we talk to, which are the board of director, lack it even more. So we try to do the bridge between two different people. So sometimes we, we are involved in dispute, but most of the time we're involved in resolving them, not in starting them. So lawyers do a lot of mediation and they do a lot of negotiation. Resolving misunderstanding between parties is a large part of her job and making sure that parties can appropriately communicate. Very often I'm on the phone call and I have the, the director of IT or the cybersecurity person and the lawyer on the other end, and I can tell this, there's tension. I can tell that it's not so easy to find one solution to move things along. And very often I feel like my job is actually to get these people to be able to talk and find a solution that they can agree upon. So cyber lawyers and lawyers in general are there to help things move, are there to help you find the risk and address them and also protect you while you're trying to address this risk. Because of attorney-client privilege, you can actually ask a question, get an honest answer, and then not be sued about it the next day because you actually look for the answer. And that's truly what's needed for a number of companies right now. Some of them, they're scared to look at themselves in the mirror and just say, okay, I got a bad security, what do I do? They're scared to ask the question. They're scared of the result of the intrusion testing because they know they don't got a, a good position and it becomes fake it till you make it and then nobody does anything to make it. So I, I think one thing we bring to that uh, attorney-client privilege relationship is the trust needed for that person to actually be honest about what cybersecurity they have or not have and what that can lead to in terms of problems. And then they can make that honest decision on their own of, is that a risk I'm willing to accept or not? But without that information, people cannot make that decision. They're just trying to avoid the decision altogether. Thank you to Vanessa, and a great big thank you to our gracious guest, Dr. Lyon. We'll continue that conversation next week. I have put some links to the works mentioned in the show notes, and I do recommend you find a copy of one of the books to read. In the meantime, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter.